For the last year or so, you've been hearing me talk about Active Pass, our annual membership here at Velo News that includes, oh, today's planned coaching, entry to Rome SCF events, Velo Press books, exclusive industry deals, and so much more. Hey, I have some big news today. We have changed the name of the membership to Outside Plus, and we've packed a ton of new cool stuff into the overall bundle. Uh, first off, we're not taking any of the old perks away from the Active Pass bundle, but we are adding more. Uh, like what? Well, you get a one-year print subscription to Outside Magazine. You also get a premium account with Gaia GPS, the GPS app that allows you to explore detailed maps of your favorite riding or hiking destinations even when you're offline. Never get lost again, folks. Even if you don't have cell service, you can find out where you're going with Gaia GPS. You get a photo package from Finisher Picks, the event photography company that's at all the Roll Massif events and many other events out there. You also get access to a new Roll Massif event. That's right, the Enchanted Circle Sportive, August 28th in Red River, New Mexico. That event is free to Outside Plus members, and you also get 25% off to all the other Roll Massif events. What else is new? Online yoga courses from Yoga Journal, skiing and backpacking video tutorials, and meal plans and recipes from clean eating and better nutrition. All that goes into the bundle that already included today's plan, coaching, Velo Press books, magazine subscriptions, industry deals. There's a lot in there, and the price has stayed the same. That's right, $99 for a 12-month membership to Outside Plus. There's a lot to learn there. I suggest you all check out velonews.com forward slash Outside Plus, and you can read up about all the perks included in our new membership. Okay, let's get on with today's podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you uh, a day later in the week than normal. We are recording this on Wednesday, and I pushed the recording back. It was a very strategic move because, as hardcore cycling fans may know, Wednesday was stage 11 of the Giro d'Italia, the Strada Bianca stage that we have been waiting with bated breath for and analyzing and arguing about the merits of gravel and Grand Tour racing. And, oh, we've just been navel-gazing about this stage. And so uh, I delayed the podcast a day because I wanted to get to all of the takes and analysis from this stage. And what a stage it was. It just finished about an hour and a half ago, and I am still, like, sopping my brow from the sweat, from uh, the all the excitement and the cool stuff that we saw, and Ineos Grenadiers breaking out the steamroller to just squash everyone. Um, we're going to get to that today on the podcast. Second half of the show, uh, I'm checking in again with Larry Warbass, who's at the Giro d'Italia, and Larry is answering your questions from the Giro. We got some good ones this week about uh, water bottle toss zones and what it takes to make it into a breakaway and a bunch of other good stuff. Thank you all for sending your questions. And if you have a question for Larry or for anyone else at the Giro d'Italia, the email is mailbag at velonews.com. We'll get your question. We will ask them to the experts, put it in the mailbag column, talk about it on the podcast. And yeah, thank you for submitting your questions. So before we get to Larry and before we get to the action and analysis here, um, I'm going to introduce my co-hosts for today's podcast. Of course, we have Andrew Hood coming from the Man Cave in Spain. But we have a new co-host on the podcast, 
She is making her Velo News podcast debut. It is Sive O'Shea coming to us from the Isle of Man. Sive, before we get to all the excitement around today's stage, uh, introduce yourself to the listeners. We've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while now, and here you are. Uh, well, hello, Velo News listeners. Um, my name's Sive. Uh, I'm from the cycling mecca that is the Isle of Man. You know, we, we, we built great cyclists like Mark Cavendish. Mark Christian is in the Giro d'Italia at the moment. Um, so yeah, I grew up watching cycling, loving cycling. Um, I've been working now as a, a cycling journalist for, well, longer than I'd like to remember, but probably about a decade now. Um, and yeah, after a, a couple of years out of the sport, I'm back. And today has reaffirmed that that was probably the best decision I've made in the last two years. Yeah. Cycling media, it grabs a hold of you. It doesn't let you get away. I got away for a few years and like Sive, I came back as well. And I remember I ran into Sive. It was the 2019 uh, UAE tour and you were getting ready to leave cycling media to go work for the BBC. And I marveled at your, your get up and go and your hustle and talking to all these riders and being ahead of all the stories and I was like, boy, I hope Sive comes back to cycling media because you're so dang good at it. Sive, I'm, I'm psyched you're back in the world of cycling media. I'm glad to be back. Uh, yeah, I think I managed probably about three or four months before I started thinking about coming back. Um, yeah, it's uh, cycling media is like Hotel California. You know, you can leave, but you can or is it, you can check out, but you can never leave. Uh, and one of the guests who has who's never checked out and is never leaving. It's Andrew Hood. Um, Andy, when you think back to today's Stage 11, the Giro d'Italia, what are you? What are the memories you think from today's stage that are going to stay with you? You know, we, we, we talked a lot about the Stratobianca stage from the 2010 Giro, the Cadell Evans win, and how oh, it produced all this thrilling action. Um, was today's stage on that level? And what do you think you're going to remember from this stage? Yeah, talking about never leaving, uh, you know, especially with the Bitcoin prices taking a nosedive the last couple of days, there's no early exit for my cycling career. So you'll be stuck with me a few more years, hopefully. Um, yeah, today was a great stage. It was, um, I think they were kind of lucky with the weather, right? I mean, had it been a little more soggy and kind of, you know, apocalyptic conditions like it was during that famous Evans stage uh, 10 years ago, you know, it could have been a much more dangerous stage considering they had those kind of a couple of tricky downhills. Uh, we didn't see any major crashes, but there were a few moments where riders were kind of sketched out. Yeah, with these gravel stages, you know, it, there's a debate between is it gimmicky or is it, the, you know, does it deserve a place in a grand tour? And I, I'm kind of torn sometimes. I mean, it's a great spectacle. I, I, I like to watch these guys race on these kinds of conditions. But, you know, I also see the argument about, you know, a grand tour rider is invested and a team is invested you know, weeks and months and even years into the career to get to this point and to have some goofy stage that really is just a, you know, kind of a cheap spectacle. Um, you know, is is it really worth it? You know, what does it really add to the race? But, you know, then there's also that argument that, you know, you have to be a complete bike racer to win a Grand Tour. You know, I see both sides of the coin. I, I loved it. I wish I was there today. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, no, beautiful shots. Uh, really exciting and enticing racing dynamics. And really, the the name of the game, the story of the stage, was Ineos Grenadiers taking the race by the scruff of the neck and steamrolling the rivals to set up Egan Bernal, who attacked on this last uh, climb to you know boost his advantage. We saw Remco Evenepoel fall out of the top five. He was second place. He fell down to seventh. Idola Valter 
big loser on the day, Bardet last time, Mark Soler, Vincenzo Nibali. And really, it was because of the brute strength of Team Ineos. And it was funny, you know, before the race even started, when I looked at this Ineos lineup, and you look at some of these big brawny guys in Ghana and Moscon and Castrovieco and, uh, oh, who's the other? Narvaez. You know, these really rulers, time trialists. And it's almost like they were looking at this stage from months and weeks out and thinking, you know, we have a guy in Egan Bernal who can ride this stuff. You know, he showed us Strada Bianca this year that he is confident on the dirt roads. And let's just build a team of rulers that can just stomp everyone into paste. And, you know, we've seen some great action in the GC picture up till today, but really today ended up being a pretty decisive GC day because we bid farewell to Remco Evenepoel. I mean, he lost two and a half, two minutes, two minutes and change. And it really looked like uh, his GC run is over. Now, Saif, you know, Andy was just talking about the merits of gravel and how you know, these guys do all this preparation for these grand tours and really, you know, look and map out every inch of it. But it sounds like the Remco camp maybe didn't do as much as they could have done. First of all, what's your analysis of poor Remco's ride? But what can you tell us about? Um, it sounds like Remco did not do any pre-riding of the course. No, no, I'll get to that in a minute. I'd like to say I don't think Evanapol's race is over. I think it's far from over. Um, if any, if, like the Jura's taught us anything over the last few years through its whole history is that don't count anyone out. Um, you know, it's three week racing. Obviously, Evenepoel's not done that length of racing um, before he's kind of he's in uncharted territory at the moment. But, you know, th- that last week of racing can cause so many upsets and so many changes um you know that's what makes grand tour racing what it is is uh nothing's for certain um you know even egan bernal in the form that he's in he is not for certain we saw simon yates in the past uh dominating the first kind of week and a half or so of the giro d'italia only to explode so um yeah i wouldn't count um Evenepoel out and i wouldn't say that um the Egan Bernal's uh, Maglia Rose is like certain yet. Um, but I think that the Kuna Quick Step made a mistake today. Um, you know, Venepol's never ridden Strada Bianchi, he's never raced on gravel roads. Um, you know, he didn't do a recon of this stage um, before the Giro. Kind of thought about doing it yesterday. Um, I sat in on the quick set press conference yesterday and somebody asked him about what he thought of the stages said he's never he'd never seen them he wanted to kind of check out a couple of the state um the sectors (laughs) and the mechanics told him actually no we've got a lot of work going on right now um we'd rather if you didn't dirty the bikes with with the gravel sectors and he said oh well you know okay um i'll uh, i'll go and just do a few laps near the hotel that'll be fine um and i think it would have served him well to see those gravel sectors because Nothing can prepare you for that. You know, you need to see it face to face. Um, And I think they made a mistake not going out and just having a look at one or two of them and just getting a feel for what it's like to ride in it and those descents. Because those descents were really what made the difference for him. Um, And yeah, I think it would have been it was important for him to go and see them. Yeah, I mean, when you w- I did, went and rewatched the stage a bit and, you know, the first sector comes like 60Ks to go and you can see that Remco is sort of mid-pack 
and Bernal is right up front. Remco's kind of in the middle pack, but it was a long sector, and on some of the descents, gaps were opening up, and guys were getting ahead of him, and he was having to spend some energy to get back on. And then really it was like in that 50 to 55 Ks to go, uh, he's not making the front group. You know, I think Ineos had Ghana and Castroviejo on the front really pushing the pace. And at some point in there, a big gap opened up and Remco was in group two and he had to use his teammates to really push the pace to get back on. And they closed the gap with 48 Ks to go. But the amount of effort that went into that, and, you know, I think Remco at one point was on the front doing some work or trying to attack out of that group to get across. And it was like, ooh, boy, you know, uh, that's that's not great. And then the coup de grace came 25, 20 Ks to go. And I don't know about you guys. I mean, he just he kind of looked like like, you know, the baby deer trying to walk for the first time, a little wobbly and just not confident there. And, um, you know, it's it's a bummer to see because I feel like his race has been going pretty flawlessly up to this point. But um, when you have a team strength, the team strength of Ineos, and, and you know, by that point, there was uh, he only had one teammate with them. And and Hoodie, you you brought this up too. I know they talked about this on the broadcast, but it seemed like there were a couple kilometers in there when there wasn't really a good communication going on between his teammate Joao Almeida, who was in the group, and Remco, who was kind of getting tailed off. What's your read on what was going on at that point between Almeida and Remco? Yeah, it didn't seem like it was something intentional. Um, there was there were some quotes from uh, one of the sport directors, and they were just basically saying that uh, you know Jiao didn't really realize kind of what was happening in that key moment, and finally looked around. You know, you're in the middle of a gravel sector; it's kind of hard to look around. And those radios, you know, those radios don't always work. They're not like, like flawless, perfect uh, connections, especially in a moment like that. So it sounded like just the wires were crossed. He didn't know exactly where. Uh, Remco was, and once he did realize, of course, he quickly sat up and tried to pace him back. Uh, you know, they really couldn't find any allies out there with them, and which kind of hurt their chances of trying to get back. And then, of course, once Remco was gone, uh, Johnny Moscone just went to the front and drilled it. You know, he's not the most popular guy in the peloton. You know, we all know that uh, he's been accused of all kinds of different things. But there's one reason why he's still racing at Ineos, and he showed that today. The guy has an absolute motor that world-class, and in this situation today, he earned his paycheck and just kicked, spit Remco at the back. He never got back. And, uh, you know, if he does nothing else for the entire Giro, Johnny must go and earn his paycheck today. So do you guys think there's going to be any tension around the uh, DQS team dinner table tonight i saw you know there was a lot of online chatter of oh Joao's not waiting for remco oh is he writing for himself oh what the heck is going on here sounds like remco didn't really talk to journalists afterwards we had a canned quote come in from the team afterwards but i don't know did you get the sense that is there going to be you know how do you, is that something that's going to need to be patched up Sive, i'll start with you um no i don't, I don't think it's something that will necessarily need to be patched up i think um they'll need to talk through what happened and what went wrong um, and use it as a learning experience but i don't think there'll be any bad blood between um Avenipol and um almeida um you know you've got to remember that almeida is only doing um his second ever giro d'italia i think his second ever grand tour he's still relatively new at this himself um and so he's you know this is a learning experience for him he's not the kind of the experienced head of somebody like Peter Seri or um, even Gianni Moscon, you know, he's he's still pretty young. Um, and so I think uh, they'll they'll need to lick their wounds. They'll need to learn from this. You know, this has been a major hit for them. But I don't think that there's going to be any bad blood 
over the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, people are talking this is like the end of Remco. I, I totally agree with Sive. I think that uh, when you look at where he is on GC, yeah, he lost two minutes plus to uh, Bernal. Um, but when you look at the virtual GC right now, he's still quite close. I think he's only little, little more than one minute behind the virtual podium with Caruso. And if you look at the top riders on GC top 10, he's by far the best time trialist. So if Remco can get through this final second half of this Giro, you know, get to Milano, you know, there's still a pretty good chance he could finish on the podium. And I think that, you know, quick step, they're smart. They're not putting too much pressure on Remco. You know, he probably puts more pressure on himself than he does than the team is. So yeah, tension, no. Uh, like like I've said, it's a learning experience. And I think that the people around Remco are, are telling him that it's like, look, first, this is your first Giro, you know, don't sweat, you know, you lose two minutes. It's not the end of the world. You've had a great first half of the Giro, you know, get through today. Let's turn the page uh, and get up Montezoncalon, which I think is going to be an even more important test. I mean, I think there I expect him to struggle more in, in real time losses to Bernal than what happened today, which is almost more tactical than, than really anything. Uh, if you guys are zigging on the uh, Remco's GC run continues, I'm going to zag. I'm going to take the opposing opinion. And I think that today is, alas, uh, a sign that Remco's um, run at the GC is over. I, I was just sort of, for more me, it was tactics, but it also, he just, he looked really tired. I mean, he just looked gassed, you know, and I start to wonder about, hey, we're day 11. We have Zonkalan coming up. We have that brutal third week. He's untested at this level. He's not had a ton of r- racing in his legs. And this may be the first big sign of, um, you know, uh, his engine gradually losing steam, which, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. We love Remco here. We know that coming into this race, he's not at 100%. This is not the Grand Tour debut we wanted for him. Um, it's a grand experiment, and he has performed awesome. And I feel like anything beyond what he has already accomplished in this race is icing on the cake. And when he gets back to full Remco status, can't wait to see him racing Grand Tours. Um, what are some other takes, what takeaways you guys had from today's stage? We saw George Bennett attack. We saw, you know, Ineos and their steamrolling uh, was the big story, but Dan Martin lost a lot of time. You know, Sive, when you look at some of the other storylines to filter out of today's stage, what pops into your head? Um, well, yeah, I think Dan Martin's uh, GC tilt is done. Um, I, you know, he hasn't got the benefit of being able to um, time trial back some minutes. Um, I don't think he's going to be gaining an overly large amount of time on his GC rivals in the in the big mountains, um, unless unless he tries uh, a bit of a hail mary and just goes for a does an Andy Schleck <laughs> goes flying through the mountains. Um, but I don't think that's uh, possible. Um, I think it's interesting to see um, the the couple of Brits just kind of slowly moving up the the GC, kind of quietly doing their thing. They haven't really been. I mean, Hugh Carsey, who is in um, fourth place at the moment, he's been a little bit more aggressive and he has been showing himself. Um, Simon Yates has been pretty quiet so far, and he was quiet kind of for most of today, but he still put in a solid job. He kind of kept on the main group of group of guys lost a little bit of time to Bernal but you know he's just he's keeping himself in that position you know ready to to wait to get to the big mountains and maybe um do something um perhaps he's learned from his 
mistakes in previous Giro d'Italia where he came out all guns blazing because he seemed like he might be about to do that at the Tour of the Alps. Um, but he's been super, super quiet so far. So um, I think those two, Hugh Carthy and Simon Yates, will be really interesting to watch over the next kind of week or so. Uh, EF Education Nippo, good um, good team strength on the stage today. They had Ruben Guerrero up there. I felt like they, Betial was in that front group. I felt like they did a good job of protecting Carthy and being one of the strongest teams up there to help drive the pace sometimes and help uh, bring things back together. Uh, other big story, stage winner, Maro Schmid. First time Grand Tour winner. It sounds like he's a first year pro as, as well. And, and one thing that uh, when I tuned in and saw some of the replays of when the break went, it seemed like this was all part of the Ineo strategy, which is just like, hey... Let the break go. Don't even worry about it. We're going to circle the troops and focus on GC and on squashing people. And uh, the breakaway left in a hurry and got a, a pretty good gap. But this Maro Schmid character from Kubeka Asos, um, kudos to him for surviving from that break on a tough day and winning the sprint. Who knows anything about Maro Schmidt? I can safely say I do not. I know nothing about the first I heard of him was today. Yeah, I, w- I wish I could say something. Uh, better than that, but I have to completely agree with Saif. <laughs> what what impressed me about today's stage, though, was uh, you know what happened uh, with Bernal. I mean, to me, I think this was the most impressive Bernal we've seen since 2019. You know, we saw flashes of him last year's tour and had a couple of good days before his back gave out. Even this spring, we've seen a couple of uh, good rides by Bernal. But what he did today really confirmed i think uh you know his confidence you can tell it he's getting more confident as he goes through this giro there's that big question mark still you know is his back on a holdout can he go three weeks and i think there were a lot of question marks around Bernal, but the way he wrote today riding everyone off his wheel going in that last uh that last climb gapping up to uh Buchmann, and then just going, you know, going ahead and taking the race by the, the the throat, really to me, kind of just shows that Bernal is back, kind of to where he was in 2019. That he's finally getting this kind of 2020 uh, kind of setback behind him, and that was what the team really wanted from Bernal this year. The Brailsford had said in an interview earlier this year, we want to see the smile back on Bernal's face because when he was coming in to Ineos, he was kind of in the shadow of Froome. Garrett Thomas, they carried all the pressure, all the hype, all all the responsibility were on them, and he could kind of just float off their wheels, and he won that tour. And then last year, you know, he comes in as the, you know, signs that big long-term contract with Ineos. He's the future of the team. And so that, that's a hard place to be if you're a young kid, uh, basically anonymous and suddenly thrust into this limelight. I mean, I'm watching the Tiger Woods documentary right now on HBO, so it kind of reminds me of that a little bit where well, I think this is an important test for for Bernal to get through this Giro. And the way he wrote today was impressive. Well, especially it would be as if Tiger Woods came into the league and there were like three or four other teenagers who were awesome and crushing golf. And like after he won his first tournament, all of a sudden there's all these new guys coming around because I, I'm with you, Hoodie. I'm psyched to see again Bernal back. He looks strong. He looks confident. A week ago on this podcast, we talked about how he was bridging up to some of these moves on these early stages and just looking crisp and like sprinting and stuff like that. And we saw that in the summer summit finish the other day on the gravel road where, I mean, he just unleashed this insane attack, attacking in the big ring on the gravel. And it's like, oh boy, you, you do that when you're really confident. But I keep wondering now, it's like, okay, well, what uh, what does full power Bernal, 
what, what is it? How does that rank up against full power Pogachar or uh, full power power um, Roglic or some of the other young young guys of this era? You know, I think it's great to see Bernal winning right now, but I can't wait to see like when we get to see this Bernal go up against Pogacar and uh, and Roglic. So, I mean, we have a couple of big stages to go. We are recording this on Wednesday. There's a big mountain stage Thursday. We lead into Saturday, which is the Zonkalon stage. Woo! Um, my Velo Games team is getting blown out of the water after an early start um, because I didn't pick Egan Bernal. I stupidly didn't pick him. I was, I was cocky and was like, ah, Egan Bernal... You know, he's partying on the beach or whatever. He doesn't want to be a pro cyclist anymore. And he has proven me wrong and, and probably a lot of doubters out there as well. Um, Saif, what are you excited about in the next few stages of the Giro? What are you going to be keeping your eyes on? As a lot of people, probably, I'm very much looking forward to the Zonkalan. Um, I think that's going to be um, an incredible stage to watch. Um, I'm actually, more than anything, I'm interested to see what it will be like with fewer fans on the top. I assume there will be some because the Italians, you know, they will do anything to go and watch a bike race. So there will be people there, but it's not going to be like the um, stadium that we, uh, we've seen before. Um, I actually, I went back um, this morning and was watching an old stage on the Zonkalan and it's like, it's just unreal, especially after two, like a year and a half of watching, um, bike races with so few fans it's like it's unreal just watching that many people uh supporting a bike race and getting that close to the riders i think the riders are going to have an awful lot more space which actually could be great for the racing because often the problem is with these big mountain stages where there's so many fans there's no room to attack and so i actually think the the fewer fans while it'll be sad to see it might give us some better racing um and allow a lot more um, much more aggressive racing near the top. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. That's funny that it's kind of like when you watch like a movie from before the pandemic and you see someone on like a busy city street and you're just like, oh, gross. Ugh. It's like watching pre-pandemic bike racing. And you're like, oh my God, think of the germs that are jumping off of these fans onto poor uh, Simon Yates. Um, I'm with you. I love the Zonkalan hoodie. You wrote last year a, a great piece about the Zonkalan and the Angliru and these hyper climbs and their new emergence as like a, a, a actual recent, somewhat recent occurrence in Grand Tour cycling. Um, what can you tell us about the direction they're coming from and like why Zonkalan has had such a stir in in the Giro and in just Grand Tour racing in general? Yeah, Zonkalan was one of those first really hyper steep extreme climbs that these Grand Tours started to introduce, you know, uh, almost 20 years, well, 20 years ago now with the Angliru and the Zonkolan. Uh, if I'm not if I'm not wrong, the, the climb goes up from the other side this year. It doesn't kind of go up from that, um, you know, the, the amphitheater setting, but it's still just as steep. On, it's, it's not quite as steep, but it's it's still a, a sharp end of that stick there w- with that climb. I'm looking forward to seeing um, how Vlazov can do. Uh, he's kind of a smoky right now. And, and I'm also very curious to see if uh, Hugh Carthy and Yates can mount something here going into the second half. I mean, there was some talk that uh, Carthy wasn't in full form. He had like some sort of sickness coming into this Giro. So he might not be 100%. And um, so, you know, who could take it to really to Bernal and Enios? It's, it has to be one of those guys, the Vlazov. He's kind of like the unknown, really. 
in this scenario. I mean, we saw Carthy last year had a great Welta. Yates has won the Welta. He's done well at the Giro. So we don't know how far Vlaskov can go in this. In this, he had a great Welta last year, but one more year in his legs, he's really kind of this promising young Russian rider that the whole Russian uh, cycling establishment would have been waiting for for 20 years. So I'm very excited to kind of to see how far he can go in this, in this Giro. I think Vlazov needs to um, pull a page out of like the Vladimir carpets and grow a sick mullet and a cool beard, like some kind of identifiable feature to give him a bit more personality because we don't get a lot of quotes from him. He's Russian. There's always kind of this cultural divide there. So we can't like assign them a personality as fans. So if there are any Astana team staffers listening, I would pass along to Alexander Vlasov, maybe some cool facial hair or really extreme haircut to like give us some sort of identifiable uh, feature there. Um, anyway, we got, Zonkalan coming up. We have more mountain stages. We are going to return next week on our normal day of uh, recording Tuesday, publishing Wednesday. But um, this has been a fabulous Velo News podcast, the debut of Sive and Andy with a hot take. So I will let you two get back to your afternoons there. And we are going to check in with Larry Warbass and hear from both of you next week. Good fun. All right, now back on the line, it's Larry Warbass coming to us uh, rest day number one at the Giro d'Italia. And Larry is, of course, going to answer your questions about the mysteries of the Giro. And God, there's a lot of mysteries of the Giro and way more questions than we could get to. But I've called five uh, for them. Uh, Larry, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Of course, yeah, happy to be here. I mean, before I get to the reader questions, my question for you is, it's the rest day. Like, what does a typical world tour, grand tour rest day look like for you? So, yeah, it starts with, like, usually a pretty chill morning, <sighs> roll out of bed. But actually, in the end, we haven't had too many early stages yet, so about the same time as usual. Um, well, <clears throat> some of the guys got, uh, like, anti-doping tests uh, this morning, my roommate. I didn't, luckily. Just It was nice. I got to sleep longer. But he got woken up at 7.30. I, I got to sleep till 8.30. Uh, so that was good. Um, so yeah, sometimes you get tested on the rest day. That's pretty common. Um, and then if you don't, then you get to sleep a little longer. Uh, we had a nice chill breakfast after that. And then, yeah, just a, a short, easy ride. So we did like an hour and a half. Um, pretty, pretty easy. Uh, stopped for a nice coffee in the center of Perugia, where we're staying uh, this rest day. And um, yeah, we had a nice little crostata uh, at the pasticceria coffee, and then uh, rolled back here, had lunch, massage. Then we uh, snuck out for a little gelato. That was delicious. Uh, and then, yeah, saw the osteopath talked with my mom <laughs> and now it's talking to you guys and then dinner. That sounds like a pretty good day. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's like, been a good day. It's been a good day. Hour and a half spin around Italy, some gelato, some delicious food, maybe mm. catch up with the family. Um, rest day sounds, rest day sounds like a grand tour stage that I could actually do. Yeah, those are, these are the best grand tour stages. That's for sure. I mean, last week, you know, the question about, you know, could a cat one survive? And you're like, you know, stage two is so easy. I think a cat three could survive. I think I'm still more of like a rest day guy, even, even when comparing to an easy Giro day. 
Um, cool, man. Well, hey, let's get to these questions. The first one came in um, during those rainy few stages we saw last week where the Peloton looked absolutely frigid and cold and miserable on some of those days. And so the question is, what is your post-stage ritual like on these rainy cold days and how is it different from a normal day? Basically, like, are you doing anything different after a rainy, cold, awful day to help with recovery and to help getting you back to normal? So, not really. Um, I mean, like, we take vitamin C a little more, you know, like, like, oh, like, let's, let's try to get the vitamin C up, uh, just in case, you know, to, uh, <clears throat> avoid getting sick. But other than, you know, uh, have a little more vitamin C, there's really not a whole lot we do, you know, it's like, we try to get in. Okay. The only thing in the race, sometimes they'll make hot tea, which is actually really nice. Um, so sometimes on the side of the road, they have hot tea, which, uh, I mean, it's a really small thing, but when you're freezing in a race and you have hot tea, that's like the greatest thing ever. So essentially we just get across the line. We try to get to the bus and get as warm, get warm as quick as we possibly can, uh, get a hot shower. So yeah, it's just essentially take, take all your wet clothes off as fast as you can get in a hot shower maybe spend a little longer in the shower than normal, uh, and then get warm. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, after there's not really a whole lot that we do actually differently. Um, so really I would say most of what you do differently comes in like the preparation, which would be like, you know, preparing your clothes, you know, what you're going to wear that day, you know, maybe you're going to take a different base layer than normal, uh, like a thicker base layer or, you know, yeah, I guess <clears throat> gloves and we have rain bags in the car with different, uh, you know, rain gear or warmer stuff. And, um, so it's more actually during the race and then in the preparation that would be different rather than after the race. It's not like the, uh, massage, you know, feels any different or hurts any more or less after a day like that. Yeah. Maybe your muscles are a bit tighter sometimes. Um, because yeah, you, yeah, it just got really cold, you know? So th that might be the only thing. Yeah, your muscles might be a little bit tighter, but uh, beyond that, not really anything too different. Awesome. Uh, here's the next question. Uh, it's been more than a month since the new rules, I'm taking it, that's the super tuck ban and the water bottle rules were enacted. What are guys talking about in the Peloton about these rules? Is it back to business as normal or are people still talking about this stuff? Well, I mean... I guess in terms of the arrow thing, like the super tuck, that actually is business normal. No one's really talking about that anymore. Um, yeah, it's a bit annoying to not be able to sit on the top two, but actually I can't really say that anyone's talked about that much. Now the trash thing is actually like, that's actually like bugging people. What? It's changing. Ah, okay. Well, my roommate just told me that actually they're changing the rule tomorrow. So maybe we have a scoop. Uh, apparently on mountain stages on the last 50 K you can throw bottles away. So you heard it right here. First time folks scoop on the Velo news podcast. <laughs> Me too. Okay. That's cool. Uh, nice to know. Well, yeah. So uh, I guess yeah, the annoying thing is, is like, okay, there's two things. So when you come to the last green zone of the day, uh, 
Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm reading this. So UCI amends bottle throwing regulations at the Giro. On climbs within the final 50 kilometers, riders will be able to throw bottles as long as they don't endanger riders or spectators. UCI will also be more accommodating in some other circumstances, echelons, etc. That's from LaFemme Rouge on Twitter. So, okay. <clears throat> sorry. Anyway, back to uh, what we were saying was. In the last green zone of the day, it's like bombs away because everyone throws everything in their pockets out, right? Which, you know, are all sorts of things. So, like, it's just like trash and plastic and bottles and everything flying everywhere. And it's really dangerous because they're just bottles exploding and there's stuff all over the road. And, like, uh, yeah. And then, on the other hand, when it's not a green zone, sometimes guys still throw stuff, right? But then they're scared to get in trouble. So, they just throw it in the middle of the Peloton. So, like, Two days ago, I'm riding down the road, and all of a sudden, somehow, I get a Coke can in my wheel. Like, it's stuck in between my wheel and my frame. And so, I'm riding, and it's just like, you know, and there's like a Coke can. And I'm like, what do I do? And so, I take my bottle to try to hit it out. And then it gets wedged. And then, like, my my bike just, you know essentially nearly comes to a stop in the middle of the Peloton. And uh, so, it was actually really dangerous, you know, uh, things like that. Luckily, no one hit me, but like, I mean, there was nothing I could do to avoid it. And so, you know, things like that, uh, it's a little bit dangerous and people are a bit annoyed by that, you know, because like what they tried to make a solution to make it less dangerous is actually becoming a little more dangerous. So, Oh my God, that is an amazing story about the Coke can. Every like triathlete or grand Fondo century ride person has likely had to contend with something like that. But now world tour riders are having to contend with it to soda cans just flying into your spokes. Oh God. Uh, well, we're glad to hear that you did not, uh, endo in the middle of the Peloton and become like a crazy statistic from the, from the zero. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, here's one. Uh, what's the effort like to make it into the breakaway at the Giro versus in a domestic U.S. race? Sort of the difference in the effort and maybe even some strategery trying to make it into like a, a Grand Tour breakaway versus at a domestic U.S. race. So it totally depends on the day because if it's a flat day, um, which there have been a few of, then it's really easy. Then like if you want to go on the breakaway, you can be in the breakaway. You just ride off the front. You know, like uh, essentially they like – it's almost like – they want people to go on the breakaway because no one wants to go on the flat days because everyone knows the sprinter teams are going to control and pull it back for a sprint. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like no one wants to be there because they know they don't have a chance to win. Um, but then the, there are certain teams that, you know, it's, it's really important to get like the TV time uh, because you, you do get a lot of time on TV if you're in a breakaway. So on those days, it's quite easy, but on the mountain days, it's like, just unreal hard you know like uh sometimes it can take forever you know it can take an hour or more two hours for the breakaway to go and it's just attacks the whole time and the groups exploded and so yeah it's like uh, the other day i really wanted to be in the break and yeah i attacked from the gun didn't work suffered over the first climb still didn't go second climb there was a break going i rode across to it died a thousand deaths and we thought we were gone it was a group of 15 of us over like the long first climb of the day and then all of a sudden someone behind wasn't happy and uh yeah then they just chased us back after like 40 something kilometers uh and then yeah it all blew up again so um it's a really big fight and yeah sometimes it's just really hard it's a bit of a crapshoot and and you need the legs so uh 
Yeah, I guess, I mean, I haven't really raced in the U.S. for quite some time now. So, um, yeah, I, I almost, I, I can't remember what it was like when I was younger, uh, you know, racing like some of the domestic races like Redlands and Cascade Classic and stuff. Um, but yeah, I can tell you some days on these mountain days, it's a big, big fight. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, I think that the the drama that goes on to form a breakaway and a lot of times the moments of the race that we don't get to see, I think you I feel like you could write, you know, entire volumes of books about that. To me sometimes that's those are the most compelling storylines that come out of these bike races. It's just all of the different dynamics and the efforts and the agony and the drama that went into either making it or not making it into a breakaway. Yeah, I think the old adage with like the domestic stuff, I remember hearing it was like, well, you know, you wait till they get a minute gap and then do a superhuman effort out of the Peloton. But, you know, you know, but- that doesn't, that's not possible here. <laughs> if you don't catch, if you don't get on the train when it's leaving, uh, that's, you're not going to get on. Um, great. Okay. Here's a, here's a gravel question. We've had a number of, um, what are your thoughts on the inclusion of gravel in world tours? Is it a gimmick unsafe or is it cool? I think it's pretty cool. Okay. So like, I'll say like the little hilltop finish the other day on the gravel. Well, I'm a semi gimmicky, you know, like, uh, <clears throat> as in like, okay, it was a little bit loose, but it wasn't like anything crazy. And it was just uphill for a K and a half. I think it probably made for really nice images, but I don't think it really race at all. I think tomorrow could change the race a bit, you know? Um, so I think like the Strata Bianchi day tomorrow, uh, yeah, that'll definitely add a different dynamic to the race, which I think is cool. Uh, because, you need to be a well-rounded rider. And, uh, I think we'll see if anyone's not well-rounded, we'll see the weaknesses tomorrow for like the GC guys. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I can't wait to watch this thing. By the time listeners listen to this, I think the stage may have already ended, but there's been so much intrigue around this gravel stage. And I mean, it's legit, you know, it's not just an uphill ramp. It's, you know, 35 K's and it's Strata Bianca and it could have real impacts on the, on the GC. So I know I, I, I see some people saying, ah, oh, it's a gimmick, you know, puncture could ruin the whole grand tour, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of it too. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. All right. Here's the last one. How do you stay in touch with friends and family during a grand tour? Uh, FaceTime and text. So today was the first time I FaceTimed with, uh, my mom. Um, but yeah, usually we're texting pretty frequently. So yeah, I text my family quite a bit. And like, what do they want to know? Is it sort of, Oh, it's just kind of like, yeah, how's it going? How was the day today? You know, saw your teammate didn't finish what happened, you know, like, Oh, you look good. You know, like uh, watch you on TV or like, you know, this or that. Yeah. It's just kind of, you know, the usual. Are they asking you like strategic questions? Like, Oh, Remco, you know? Oh no, no, no. Like, uh, they'd be like, who's, who's Remco? They, they wouldn't know. They, they, uh, yeah, they follow, but, uh, yeah, they're only concerned about Larry, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh God. I, I love it. Even when I'm at a race as a journalist, my dad will watch the tour. And so he will like get a lot of his takes from, you know, the NBC telecast and sort of ping questions off of me. But, um, yeah, a lot of times it's pretty general, but that's good to know that the war basses are still, they're concerned about Larry and they want to know, how their son is doing in his three-week trip across across Europe. Cool. Great, Larry. Well, again, you have been phenomenal at answering the people's questions about the Giro d'Italia. And um, race starts up again tomorrow. No problem. And and just just a thing a thing for the Strata Bianchi, for the people who asked last time. I don't remember if I had decided this yet, but I will ride tubeless tomorrow. I'll ride 26 tubeless, which measure 27. 
and my thought behind that is that like we had an option between 28 tubulars or the tubeless. And I just thought, actually, I really been liking riding the tubeless. I've ridden them every stage except one here. Um, and I thought, yeah, they roll really well in the flat. It's flat at the start. So I think it'll be good for going in the breakaway. And I think, yeah, they're pretty good for the dirt road. So just, just for, uh, yeah, I know that was a big question last time. So for those interested. I, I appreciate that. And we posed that question to Trek Segafredo's mechanics too. And they were like, you know, a lot of our riders, because we've had them training on tubeless and they're starting to like request those for the races because they like the lower pressure and they like the rolling of them. Well, Larry, we will let you get back to the rest day and we will watch and cheer along on the telecast. Larry Warbass, everyone, uh, we'll check in with you a week from today. Sounds great. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.